Hey, what's everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. A podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. What is crack-a-lackin', everybody? Guess who's back in the studio? My man, Ryan. Hey, everybody. Congrats R- on the baby, dude. Thanks, my brother. Ryan uh, Reduvivus, the myth is, has come true. I have returned. How's uh, the fam jam? We're, we're, we're doing wonderfully. We're a little bit sleepy. Tell everybody the name of the baby, dude. Uh, the, our, our, our son's name is Graham Henry. We named him for Graham Green and St. John Henry Newman. Give him a little bit something. King Henry, don't lie to me. (laughs) (laughs) That would be funny, wouldn't it? Uh, We wanted to give him something literary and uh, saintly to aspire to. Jess is doing well. yeah, And and, and he only wakes up two or three times per night with intention. That's right. He he wants something from us. He's not colicky. No, not 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 yet. Anyway, that's right. Yeah, let's let's keep riding this wave and find out. He does have the little baby pimples. You remember oh, the little baby yeah, pimples? Yeah, yeah. I forgot about those. Yeah. Um. So like, what's what? happening to his face? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby Adjusting pimples. to life outside the womb. Hormones. Yep. I remember when Lena was born, she had a she. We had to stick her in the sun because uh, what was it called? She had jaundice a little bit, and ah. like she, the doctor was like, "Yeah, kind of just like lay her on a pillow." In this, in the window, like a plant, and we're like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like one of those old timey Jane Austen cures for That's something right, like yeah. go take a holiday at sea, and that will cure your tuberculosis. It'll or be fine. Like that. It'll be yeah. fine. You'll you'll be okay. Put a leech on it. Leech yeah, yeah. yeah. Put, put a leech on it. Go spend some time in a swamp. You'll you'll be fine. That's right. All right. Well, today we are beginning our epic journey. Of going through all the books of the New Testament. 27 books in 27 weeks. I remember one time when I was in high school, random side story, uh, my youth minister, I volunteered for a middle school youth group, but I was in high school, and my youth minister asked me to give a talk on the books of the Bible, which I was definitely not qualified to do because I was a junior or senior in, yeah, in high wow. school. Yeah. And the worst part about this was that he asked me the like when I got to the youth night because the main speaker had canceled. Goodness. Yeah, not a good youth ministry call. Yikes. And so he told me, he's like, hey, just, just remember this, you know, this may, you know, there's what, uh, 49 books of the Old Testament? No. Books of the Old Testament. 47? 48. There's 73 total. 73 minus 27 is. Math dun, is. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Math is hard, ladies I'm and gonna gentlemen. I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to sit here and like watch you do it. In your <laughs> Don't head. wait for do it. You want the calculator? I'm, I have an excuse. I'm sleep deprived here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I got, I got a calculator right, right, do, right here. Do, do 73, 73 minus 27. Minus 27. Boy, we probably, 46. Well, there we go. Yeah, we probably should edit go. that part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's gold. That's gold. But two masters in biblical theology and couldn't tell you the number. Wasn't any math in my degree. I'll tell you that. <laughs> that's right. right. Um, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I remember he told me the numbers, and but like I went up there, didn't have notes, and was like, "Yeah, there's there's 35 books of the Old Testament," and oh, blah, blah, the math was right, but then the numbers were off, and so he had to get up after the talk, and he's like, "Hey, everybody, um, Chase got that wrong," and blah 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 blah. <laughs> so, um, had you ever spoken in public before? But yeah, that- I'd, I'd given talks before, like okay. low key, like youth ministry talks, um, but that was the the first or second like five minutes before youth night starts, he comes up to me and says, Hey Chase, can you talk for 10, yeah, 10 minutes about that's this? That's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. I kind of just rolled with it, you know, and that's why probably public speaking is not like scary to me at all anymore because after doing that in high school, you're just like, whatever. Well, some people are naturals and some people have to have the fear of public speaking kind of beaten out of them in the crucible of, of <laughs> was youth that, group. Was that so, you in seminary? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, preaching once a week and then you and your professor and all of your 
classmates just kind of roast your sermon and tell you what's good about it, tell you what's bad. But by, by the end of it, you're like, hey, I'm ready to do this. Thing. That's so. right. Roast me away. Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyway, before we dive into the gospel according to Matthew, Greek word of the day, I thought it was kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, but also kind of made sense. So in, in Greek, it's kata methion, right? So kata. According. Like according to or against or with. This is one of those awful Greek words that can mean a bunch of things. Yeah. But kata. Yeah. I always think of uh, Paul opposing Peter, kata prosopon, to his face. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Against, with, according to, mm-hmm. all these mm-hmm. things. The gospel according to Matthew. It's our first book I of wonder, the day here. I, I wonder how many things that word actually means. I have my Logos Bourbon Bible software out, guys. Oh, yeah. Cue it um, up. Pitch, pitching um, the, the software. You should totally buy it. Bible word study. Oh, man. It can mean... Um, a bunch of things. Let's look at the Greek. Is there like so, a most common definition of it? With. With? According to, against, with, re, in respect to. Okay. Yeah, yeah, So if you don't have a Logos Verbum Bible software, everybody, you should go buy it. Is it expensive? Well, so there's a monthly subscription now. When I bought it, I bought it at a discounted student rate, and it was a couple hundred bucks. But yep. you, like, you, 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 once you bought it, you bought it kind of thing. So now they move to the subscription model. That is the way of, the, of all flesh, is yeah. the subscription model. Yeah, so... Um, and now, so it, and they have different tiers. So depending on what, how much goodies you want, if you will, archangel tier. That's right. Um, and Seraphim so, but tier. yeah, you should definitely look into it because it's if you want to study the Bible seriously, I think you you need the, and yeah, I think it just makes your life easier, right? Um, and plus, it comes with like two hundred books. Yeah, and arguably, it's much cheaper than trying to buy all of these commentaries on paper. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And you can carry it in your backpack. Yeah. In your satchel. There's an app on your phone as well. Like I can look up random Greek words on my phone. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, it's great. Um, All right. So gospel according to Matthew. So kind of how Ryan and I want to tackle these books, if you will. It's not probably not going to be perfectly every time, but we'll start with talking about authorship, right? And some date. And then we'll, we'll get in some literary structure and then some themes. And then if we have time, we'll dive into some specific passages and content and stuff like that. But uh, who knows if we'll get there. We'll try to keep this around 30 minutes still, like all of our podcasts. Maybe for Romans, we'll need a two-parter. Um, yeah, some of those, for some John, of those bad boys are a little bit long. Yeah, so. so John, Romans, we might need some two-parters. But we'll plan on not having that because it, this is already going to be a long series. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, Ryan, you want to talk about authorship? The author, yeah. And this is traditionally uncontested. And even now, when you see folks wondering if it really was Matthew... They're not really, there's not really anybody in particular that they can replace him with. So right. uh, from the second century on, we have a fellow named Papias who was a... Uh, Pappy. Yeah. Pap. <laughs> My boy Pap. <laughs> who, heard, uh, who heard that this was written by Matthew, uh, the disciple, the tax collector from John the Apostle. And that remained really uncontested um, in the early church for centuries and millennia. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah so fairly uncontroversial even today to say, right. yeah, that's, that's Matthew. And even the arguments against Matthew are based on the predisposition or that they believe Mark was written first. Yes. Right. right. The whole uh, Q hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I guess we should talk about Q source a little bit here and jumping into the synoptics. Let's do it for like two seconds. Okay. Two seconds on Q. That's yeah. about all the time I want. That's right. It's, so anyway, the Q, Q hypothesis is this unbacked up theory that the gospel of Mark was written first and that Luke and Matthew used Mark as kind of a, a, resource to write their gospels and so this q hypothesis is that matthew and luke had the gospel of mark in one hand and this mysterious q document that just had quotes from jesus 
on yeah. the other thing. Raw material with which to create something called the gospel. Right. Yeah. Problem with that is there are is literally, and I mean quite literally, no evidence of this Q hypothesis. Who made it, it up? Who invented it? I, I, it was I, wa- some, I want to say that it's Jesus seminar kind of stuff. But, yeah, it's uh, like some random theologian was like, this is clearly had, had had to happen. It's really a fine theory. If there were any shred of evidence that it actually right. existed, we would be on board with it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. can't so, really find so it. So that's, that's the only reason people argue against Methan authorship is because why would an apostle write after and use somebody who wasn't an eyewitness to write his, his gospel. Um, but I think even if Mark wrote first, Matthew, knowing that it came from Peter before him, I don't think Matthew would have been like, I can't use this stuff. I was there. Like, well, and, and like, think about Luke. Luke says, uh, Hey, I did some research. Yeah. I wasn't there, but I, I talked to the best people and here's what we've got. Right. So, uh, should we talk about the difference between, uh, the, this is not in our notes, but should we talk about the difference between a gospel and like a biography, strictly speaking? Oh, sure. So we did talk about Greco-Roman biography last week. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You, so we, yeah, yeah gotcha. we, 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 so if you didn't want to listen to last week when Ryan wasn't here, um, <laughs> Ryan didn't listen to the last week's podcast. When Ryan was away, the chase played. <laughs> That's right. So. No, yeah. So we talked about Greco-Roman biography last week and how the gospels kind of fall into that cool. category. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what about uh, location here? So we're, yeah. we're, we're sold on Matthean authorship. It comes from Matthew, the disciple. But uh, Antioch is where, yeah, Antioch. in my research, that's what I've, mm-hmm. I've kind come of to here. North, ju- northern Judea, northern Israelite turf, essentially. Yeah, in, in modern-day Turkey, I, I've been there. They call it Antakya. So it hasn't hasn't changed too much yeah. in all in all of that time. And, and so the and that, that kind of goes into okay, who was this written to, right? And this question is gonna be way more important as we get into kind of like Pauline letters and stuff like that. Um, gospels, it's it's kind of important. Um, I think less so than understanding Paul's letters. But um, yeah, so people speculate that this these were written to Jewish converts to Christianity, right? Um, and so basically people say that because Matthew never really explains the Jewish customs. And there's like 200-something Old Testament quotes. And there's a lot of like new Jewish Christian apologetic material. Mm. Lots of quotes from the Old Testament. And if you look at a big urban center like Antioch, you would have uh, a place where these new Jewish Christians had a lot of opportunities to rub elbows with and have conflicts with their Jewish brethren who maybe weren't all in with this Jesus program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's a little bit of authorship, and, and, and uh, odds are this was written before 70 AD because the, the temple, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And, and here we have a prophecy from Jesus of the destruction of the temple without any inclination from the author that this has already happened. Um, so odds are it was written around 60, 65 I think that's what most people say, right? I, I, I got anywhere from 70 to 100. See, 70, 70 would have been the year that it was destroyed. Yeah. So yep. when, I was, when I was doing my research on my end, it was, it was 65 to 90. Yeah. So I tend, I, tend, I tend early because of the whole the temple wasn't destroyed thing. Yep. And yep, yep, yep. the author probably would have included that. You would think. Right? You would think. Anyway, but when it comes to date, Ryan and I don't care too much. At least <laughs> I, it's, it's like it was written. Some people really it, love debating it's a, it's date. It's a first century document game. Yeah. Like that's, that's about as best as we can do. Yeah. From the apostolic age. Yeah. Um, some people really love debating dates and authorship and location. I think because they're bored and they have nothing else to do. Um, we have more important things to do besides <laughs> debate this. So, um, but cool. So let's go ahead into like, um, 
I guess themes, right? Can I, can I do can I do a quick kind of overview of all the bits? Oh yeah, let's do that first. Take like thirty seconds here, and then yeah, we'll yeah, zoom yeah. in on the parts we want to talk about. Sure, let's do it. So you got the prologue in one and two, which establishes Jesus's Jewish roots. That's chapter one and two. Yeah, right? and we'll look so at the genealogy here in a second. Jesus uh, as the new Moses, Jesus as the new David, and the kingdom of heaven, and all that. Then you have what are commonly called the five discourses. So you got the Sermon on the Mount in five through seven. Uh, the mission directives to the 12, so go and talk and gather the lost sheep of, of Israel in chapter 10. Parables of the kingdom in 13. Uh, and then discipleship and discipline, so if your brother sins, what to do about that in 18. Then comes the Olivet Discourse, eschatology, the end of the temple in 24-25. Then the climax, you have the death, resurrection, and the great commission all coming from Jesus. So we had a couple of things, of course, that we want to zoom in there in that yeah. outline and talk about. Yeah, and so, and really, to, and to help us zoom in, and what we'll do with all with all the books of the New Testament, we we need to get, we need to get into kind of like themes because we have to remember that every book of the New Testament has an audience, obviously, and and it has an author that has certain themes that they're trying to educate that their audience in, right? And so Ryan and I were talking before the show, and basically, you know, for Matthew, I mean, arguably the strong theme is this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Um, so this is a super important theme and arguably like, I mean, really just the thing you have to, if you, if you read Matthew and don't ever think, what is the kingdom of heaven Th- there? You didn't read it closely cause it's, it's everywhere. Right. Hey, Chase question here. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom, does that mean that Jesus is telling me how to go to heaven when I die? Is that what it's all about? It's about how Jesus is a king and he formed a kingdom, and it was lost, and the Mormons recovered it. Hey! <laughs> Curveball. Just checking to see if y'all are paying attention. Yeah, that's right. No, yeah, so the, this, this kingdom imagery, um, and actually I'm going to pull from, um, if you don't have this New Testament, it's great. Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, the New Testament. It's great. So they actually break down thematically three elements of the kingdom. So for them, the kingdom of heaven has an ethical dimension, right? In the sense that it calls for a human response to Jesus. So Jesus came to establish a, a, a heavenly kingdom that we're only just now previewing, right? It's going to be fully realized at the second coming of Jesus. But that being said, there is an ethical dimension to the kingdom. There's a response. You have to accept the king's invitation to live in the kingdom because where the king is, there is his kingdom, right? Um, but if you don't invite Jesus, if you don't say, yes, Lord, you can have my heart, he can't rule, right? Um, even though he does anyway, but anyway. Um, and then they say there's also an ecclesial aspect of the kingdom. And this is important um, because in, in the gospel, Matt and Ryan, you can chime in on this too. You're talking about at the end of the gospel of Matthew, we have the tearing of, of the, the curtain, right? Yeah, yeah, um, it's in the apocalyptic section right. there towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is the only gospel that makes explicit reference to the church, and, and obviously St. Peter, right? Yeah, in two places. So Peter, uh, Jesus builds the, the church on Peter. You're Peter, Peter, you're the rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and all that. And then there's another section where Jesus is talking about what to do when you catch somebody in sin, and what's the pattern here? You you talk to them first. Right. If they don't repent, and you bring, bring a couple people. The some couple people, if they don't repent still, you bring it to the elders of the church, and then you right. have to like expel them if they just refuse to repent. But yeah, that, that language of the church here is is uh, on the lips of Jesus in Matthew. Right, and so uh, sometimes you know, you'll have people say, oh, the tearing of the curtains, cult's gone, formality's gone, 
Yeah, yeah. The, the the tearing of the veil means that there's no more religion, man. Right? There's no more institution, brother. It's it's all about just the movement of Jesus, which is not true. The the tearing of the veil in the temple is an echo of what happens in Ezekiel's vision, where Ezekiel sees the glory of God depart the temple. And why does that happen here with Jesus? Well, God sends His Son Jesus uh, to inaugurate this new kingdom. And what does the temple establishment do? They put him to death. Right. right. So it's not the end of ritual or religion, but it is the end of this particular regime that happens. And, and uh, also the temples, this particular temple is going to be blown up. That's right. going to happen. And the ark wasn't even there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and anyway, the, this third, le- like, I guess, layer to this kingdom, and all this we can, we're going to expound upon a little bit too, but um, is there's an eschatological fulfillment an eschatological, I guess, orientation of the kingdom. Does our gang know what eschatology means? Man, I talked about it probably like a year ago. A year ago. <laughs> well, if you slept since then, eschatology yeah. deals with the end times, the last things, the four last things, death, heaven, hell, and judgment, and all of that good stuff. Yeah, so eschatology is the study of the last things, right? So uh, es- so an eschatological theme, you think of it, Jesus is like, oh, it's it's the fourth fourth book of Matthew fifth book fifth section fourth or fifth section when is it uh, the uh, eschatology section that's yeah. chapter 24 and 25 yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, so that's when Jesus if you ever read this part of Matthew and you're like dude what is Jesus talking about like what stars are gonna fall from the sky and all this stuff and it's 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 eschatological language it's and it's also apocalyptic language not in the sense of end times but in the sense of revealing the unknown right so he's learning he's he's pulling from Daniel here he's pulling from some prophets um, obviously, St. John later in the book of Revelation. And if it helps to think of it in terms of foreshadowing, do that. Like the end of the temple, in a real sense, foreshadows the, the end of the world. It's yeah, kind yeah. of the thing that comes first that clues you into that. Yeah. So I guess um, in broad strokes, I think something that we can zoom in on a little bit here is, is the genealogy. Um, not like we're not going to tell you every single person and all their names and where they come from the Bible. Um, but there is kind of something cool that... Um, Catholic Bible Dictionary. Have you read the Catholic Bible Dictionary? I have not. I don't make a habit of reading dictionaries yeah. usually. <laughs> so covered, it's, it's a good resource book. So um, if you buy Logos Bible Software, it comes with that. Um, another plug. Um, but uh, but it's by Scott Hahn. So Scott Hahn um, was the main author. He probably had other ones too. And so he, they point out something really interesting. So uh, one thing that most people don't know, um, unless you formally study Hebrew, which Odds are you're not weird like us and have studied Hebrew. Um, but uh, so, and same with Latin. So basically in Hebrew, because it's such an ancient language, um, they didn't have a numeric system, right? So letters connotated numbers, right? So, and this was really important for, for Old Testament Jews and Jews of Jesus' day. Um, there was the, the, what's the term? Numerology? Is that the G- term? Gematria. Is that the term? It's one of them. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for like the study of oh, number oh, significance. Right. And, and, and letters standing for numbers and vice right. versa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so Dawid um, in Hebrew, so there's no vowels in Hebrew also, heads up. And so, um, but Dawid, so David, um, is, you know, D for, for English, D-W-D, right? Um, and so that, that name, the letters in the name add up to the number of 14. So when you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, Matthew isn't as concerned with making sure he names every single family member, right? Um, he's more concerned with, with trying to tell us what? Trying to link Jesus to, as the new David-eyed, mm-hmm. right? The new mm-hmm. David figure. So this mm-hmm. is what Scott Hahn will say in the Catholic Bible Dictionary. He says, uh, the name David, Dawid in Hebrew, adds up to, oh, hold on, sorry, <laughs> adds up to 14, 
Um, and so, and David's name is also the 14th in the list. And then also they point out three was a symbol of perfection. Thus, three groups of 14 suggests a perfect fulfillment of David. Jesus is the perfect son of David, the anticipated Messiah, and his genealogy itself proclaims this, right? Yeah, and throughout the Old Testament, you have the Israelites constantly clamoring for a king, and this historically does not go well for them. Uh, the, the Lord, though, in his, in his grace, says, okay, we're, we're finally going to get you the king that you, that you need, the kind yeah. of king who, who's going to rule uh, the, 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 the kingdom of heaven here the way that on earth as it is in heaven. Right. That's the Which idea. Which was always his plan. It was always, I mean, he was supposed to be the king, right? In the Old Testament, the, the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, we always see. And then when they asked for a king, God was like offended. He was like, yeah, right. Wasn't I? What do, what do you, have you guys not been paying attention? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So God's just being like, you guys don't get it. I'm still going to be the king. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so another thing I think, you know, It'd be, it'd be an injustice of talking about Matthew without looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus is the, the new David. Uh, he talks about the kingdom of heaven all the time. He himself is the, is the um, embodiment of that on earth. But Jesus is also the new Moses. Is that where you're yeah. look, looking to go to yeah, next yeah, year? Yeah. So you think about the early parts of Jesus' life here that Matthew covers. So think about all the parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus that Matthew really wants you to pay attention to. So... Uh, Jesus' birth, like Moses, causes an uproar amongst the rulers mm-hmm. of the land. Jesus survives when uh, babies all his age are being killed. He, his family has to retrace the journey of the Israelites, the Exodus 2 and from Egypt. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, just like the Israelites were tempted in the desert for 40 years. But where the Israelites fail and where Moses fails, Jesus succeeds in all of these challenges that are set before him, setting him up to be the new and better Moses figure. Yeah. And so, and, you know, I think St. Augustine, I'm going to paraphrase St. Augustine, um, he basically says, you know, if you want to know how to be the perfect Christian, just live out the Sermon on the Mount. Sure. Um, Yeah. But if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, your first thought should be, wow, this sounds impossible. Yeah. Right, because I mean, it is without grace. Yes, right? yes, um, yes, yeah. Yeah. So Jesus definitely didn't make the law easier. You know what I used to think about the Sermon on the Mount? Were you a heretic? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I used to think that, and this is a common enough interpretation in some reform circles, but they say that the Sermon on the Mount sets up this ideal life that no one can possibly live, even with the aid of grace. And so Jesus is just setting up this standard that only He can fulfill to kind of dunk on everybody, what? which. Uh, you know, so we so we'd be thankful <laughs> to Jesus for living the life that, so that we don't have to actually do it, which uh, is a lazy great, Christianity. Yeah, it's just a great way to get yourself <laughs> off the hook. You wonder why Jesus would spend you know five through five, six, and seven chapters detailing right. it if he didn't want us to follow right. it at all. But and really, this gives, I mean, I love the Sermon on the Mount, especially because Matthew uh, five forty six: be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, jeez. Right? Yeah, yeah, and, and so it's one of those things where people. I, I mean, it kind of drives me crazy because people think, oh, well, you know, he's not really talking about perfection because that's impossible. I'm like, no, no, no. Absolute perfection is impossible, but teleological perfection is not impossible, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and moral perfection is, once again, not totally impossible. You can marry, right? Um, well, you think about, you think an Old Testament example of this might be Noah, where he's mm. blameless and upright in his generation. Right. Doesn't mean he's never done anything wrong. Clearly, right. Noah did some things wrong, yeah. but he, he couldn't be... Uh, he couldn't be accused in right. any sort of courtroom. And Jesus really wasn't mincing words. I mean, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So perfection is the goal, right? Now, once again, teleological perfection being, according to St. Thomas, 
Aquinas, uh, you know, something is perfect when it reaches the end to which it was made, right? Mm -hmm. So a gun is perfect when it shoots a bullet. It's a perfect gun, right? And so for us, obviously, absolute perfection is an impossibility in this life because we're not divine. Um, but uh, we can strive to reach the end for which we were made, namely heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And the Sermon on the Mount is basically just how to get there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Once again, you're going to say, wow, this sounds really hard. And the answer is, yeah, it's basically impossible without grace. Yeah. Jesus makes the law way harder, boys and girls. That's right. It's <laughs> not like it's easier. It's, if you've ever yeah. read like the Ten Commandments, I thought, whoosh, phew, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that anymore. Like, just read the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You know, is it, uh, you know amen, amen, I say to you, you heard that you should not kill, but I say you should not be angry with your brother or say, Raka, you fool. Yeah. So if you've ever called somebody stupid, you've already broken the Sermon on the Mount, which mm -hmm. Jesus said not mm -hmm. to do. And the interiority matters there too. Like yeah. it's not, it's not just about your actions in the world, but uh, you wanting to kill your, you, you being angry with your brother is yeah. sort of morally equivalent. And then you to, get to the whole, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, and, you mm -hmm. know, um, mm -hmm. lust in the heart, the JP2 dives really into that in theology of the body and stuff. So um, yeah, so Sermon on the Mount is definitely, I, I would argue probably the core sermon in Matthew's gospel. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I definitely. Think, I mean, there's other sermons that the books obviously like the the sections hinge upon and stuff like that. But Sermon on the Mount is definitely the summary of the moral element of the gospel. I would say. Yeah, how Christians are expected to live, move, and have their being in the world. Jesus makes it quite clear. Yeah. Uh, but when you read the Sermon on the Mount, um, and if you want to take Jesus seriously and follow him, you you might come away feeling crushed mm. as if there's just no way that you yourself could fulfill all of these commands. What, what would we say to a person who um, just felt really demoralized after reading it? How might we answer that objection? Do you think? <laughs> Good. Go to confession. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great uh, answer. I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, no, I think, I think, um, you know, fear of hell can be a first step of conversion sometimes. Right. But also repentance. Right. I mean, if you don't recognize how, broken and in need of Jesus you are, I mean, there's no, you're not a Christian, really. I mean, you're not, you're not where you're supposed to be. I mean, you're, you're the, the primary disposition of the Christian is to recognize I need Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, if the Sermon on the Mount doesn't inspire that thought in you, then you're just prideful, I guess. And, and the, <laughs> the sacraments fill us with grace such that we make progress in the kind of life mm. that Jesus is prescribing here. So yeah. it's not as if we just have to screw um, up, up our gumption and put on our game face and try as hard as we can without yeah. the Lord's help to live this life. It's not merely, a, it's not, a, it's not a bootstrap situation where you yeah. just tighten things up and go. Yeah. You can't tighten your bootstraps up to heaven. That's not the no. idea there. Yeah. You, may, you ever see, uh, you ever see the pursuit of happiness, Will Smith's movie about I, that guy I, who is like I've, homeless I, I, and then yeah. he becomes a stockbroker. I've actively avoided that because I don't want to like cry and like tear up. Oh. I've heard it's sad. <laughs> I don't, I hate, so I love and hate sad movies. Yeah. Um, I just want to watch like a check your brand at the door action movie most of the time. It's, 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 it's inspirational, but yeah, it's, it can get pretty weepy here at parts, but there's that, that uh, great scene where he finally gets like, he's been homeless and he's living on the street and he's living in the subway or whatever. And then he finally gets the internship, the job, and he's just walking out of the, uh, you see him in a, in a crowded street and nobody's really paying attention to him, but he's just like, yeah, you know, and he's pumping his fists and he's really, he's really happy to, to be alive. That's kind of the feeling that you get when you come out of confession. Mm -hmm. Like the, yeah. the, the Lord's grace has been dispensed to me in this particular way. I'm re-empowered now to live the kind of life that Jesus is calling me to. Mm -hmm. And without the sacraments, uh, yeah, I think you would be crushed by the demands of the new law that the new Moses here gives. Yeah. And, and then you're not too much time, but 
you know, and you know, looking at the eschatological kind of section of, of, of Matthew, because I think that's probably the, one of the more confusing ones um, for a lot of people. Um, and so this is just one interpretive option. And Ryan, you might, wanna, you might have another one. Basically, when you read Matthew 26, 27, um, 28, you know, we, we start getting into that section where Jesus is talking about like the stars falling from the sky. And then this, this generation will not pass away before this happens. And you might think, well, like their world didn't end. Yeah, like, right. What happened? What's the deal? And so uh, some, some scholars will say he was really talking about the temple and the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Romans. And the reason you're like, well, how do you make that connection with stars falling from the sky and all that stuff? But we have to remember that the temple was set up to be a microcosm of the world, right? So on the, if you've ever been like a, one of those uh, old churches with like stars on the roof, it's, that's a call, a throwback to the temple, right? Yeah. So in the temple, there was like a pool representing the ocean. There was garden imagery everywhere. There was stars on the ceiling. And so Jesus was, was prophesying the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And sure enough, that generation did not pass. And, and in a real sense, the de- destruction of the temple is kind of the destruction of the whole social order there for the yeah. Jews. Uh, I think it's N.T. right? I'm pretty sure he says this, but he says, if you want to imagine the significance of the temple, just imagine like the Vatican and the White House and like the Federal Reserve all rolled into one mm. building, sort of being the center of, of the, the Jewish world there. So right. in a sense, when it's destroyed in AD 70, yeah, uh, we're, uh, we're exiles again. You right. know, this is terrible. Yeah, because we have to remember, too, that for, for Jews and for Muslims, they have a theocracy, right? It's, it's their, their religion is intrinsically tied to government, right? And because, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, mo- a lot of their laws was, were based on, like, assuming they have a Davidic king, right? Yeah. Or a king, right? Yeah. And the same for Islam in a different way, right? It's a bit, a bit, you know, and that's what makes Christianity different, right? Um, Jesus doesn't tie, and St. Paul definitely doesn't tie, our faith into a particular form of governmental system, mm-hmm. right? Which Christian, is why yeah, anyway. Christians have had it pretty easy in the world in some places and pretty difficult in other places. But right. yeah, there's no one place where you get Jesus's ideal form for, for government. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why you see like, you know, you have this, this fall of Christendom and I'm like, you know, but at the same time, it's <laughs> the separation of church and state was a thing that was invented by popes like a long time ago. Some popes didn't really like live that out too well, but like technically <laughs> sure. it was a thing since like 300 um, or four. No. When did the emperor come over? Constantine. Yeah. I want to say it's in the 300s. 300s. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so, I mean, he, he went to the Pope and was like, yo bro, you want to like rule? And the Pope's like, nah, dude, I'm good. <laughs> like, so, I mean, that Pope was a saintly Pope, obviously when you get in like papal States and other stuff like that, that's a different conversation. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so it's like one of those things where for Christians, and this is why Catholic social teaching is uncomfortable for some people because it doesn't fit into the perfect, you know, peg hole of some. No, systems. I mean, wouldn't it be easy if Jesus said, "Okay, guys, everybody has to be a Republican. Everybody right, yeah. has to be a Democrat." <laughs> uh, and and monarchies aren't good, but uh, republics are good. Or you know, yeah, like, right. Give he, us something. He to gave work us with nothing. There. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, right. He said, "Love each other." <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a restructuring of our political order when we recognize that Jesus is the the new David. He's the king mm-hmm. come down from heaven. He is setting up an alternative society here. But until the end of this age, one that can exist in a democracy, a dictatorship, mm-hmm. um, in exile, in a, Monarchy. You know, in a den and cave of the earth, whatever That's you want right. to say there. So, yeah. So kind of, you know, wrapping up the gospel of Matthew, obviously, um, you know, there's a ton of beautiful stuff in this gospel. 
Um, if you're going to read one part first, read the Sermon on the Mount or just read the whole thing. Set aside like an hour or two. You can probably bust through it in an hour or two, right? If you really wanted to. Um, and so um, if you want to, I encourage you guys, I mean, definitely uh, buy a commentary, buy a Catholic commentary or like buy the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. Uh, the New Testament um, has great notes throughout on, on the gospel. If you want to st- study the gospel of Matthew in particular, do you have any commentaries you're fans of? Um, let's see. For, uh, for Matthew, shucks. Um, Catholic commentator and sacred scripture, they have a series on the yeah, New Testament, so yeah. that's a good resource. Well, it's funny. I've been reading them all week, and now none of them come to mind. Come on, we, we can man. Put them, we can put them in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, what I've been reading a lot of, what I read a lot of today was Donald Hagner's Introduction to the New Testament, so he's really good. He has a oh, chapter nice. in there on Matthew. Uh, Raymond Brown, I know you're not the biggest Brown. Gosh, you're not. Man. You're not. You're not usually down to Brown Town, but yeah. uh, <laughs> he's he's pretty good. Uh, we can put some in the show notes here. But if you guys stumble across anything and you want us to review it or recommend it to us, we're happy to to take that step too. Yeah. There's there's never been an easier time to learn about the Bible. That's uh, right. It's uh, the internet exists, man. <laughs> Come Googles. on, uh, yeah. All right, well, this has been the first of many episodes to come over all the books of the New Testament. If you have any questions or anything didn't make sense, feel free to reach out. We work here at St. Teresa's, so you can email us. And just be nice when you email us. Um, (laughs) All right, y'all, so this has been Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krause. I'm Ryan Pollock. We'll see you next time. God bless y'all. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us today on Catholics with Bibles, where we started our 27-week-ish series on the New Testament. Come back next time. We're going to be doing the Gospel of Mark. We're going to have a blast and a half. Bring your Bibles, and we'll see you next time.